following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I want to do a message this morning that's just going to help us get our bearings with this part of the Bible that we're going to be looking at in the Royal Series and just help us get a basic familiarity with some of the things. Otherwise, you're going to feel like you're just dropping into a story that you won't be able to make sense of. So this is kind of just an orientation message this morning to help us understand the big picture of what we're going to be getting into. And I want to do this by looking at a particular story from the book of 1 Samuel, the story where Israel asks for a king. This is the beginning of the whole time of Israel's monarchy. And so if you've got a Bible or a Bible on a device, pull that out. And I'll read you this story from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, it's the whole chapter, so 21 verses, but this story kind of just sets up this whole era of the monarchy of Israel that we're going to be looking at in the Royals series. So 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Now, I don't know whether any of you used to be fans of the West Wing TV program. That was a favorite for Anna and I back in the day, showing our age a little bit there. But uh, if, you, if any of you remember the West Wing, this, this program about the White House and senior officials and the president and so on, there was a particular episode where these, these representatives from Belarus came and met with officials from the U.S. government. 
uh, because they were rewriting the Belarusian constitution and trying to decide on what form of government they wanted to have. So there's this interesting scene where there's discussion between these guys from Belarus and these guys from the American government talking about what, what kind of government is going to work best for us. And, and the Belarusians are saying, we want to have a government like the Americans. We want a president who has broad powers. And the U.S. guys are saying, well, you need to think carefully about that. That may not be the best system. Have you, have you thought about maybe a system like the British have, a parliamentary system uh, where there is less power that's concentrated in one person? The American system may not be the best for you. And the Belarusians say, no, 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 no. no the, the, the person that we have is our leader. He, he's a good man. And, and he will use his power wisely on behalf of all people. And, and the American guy is saying, yeah, yeah, but, but you need to think about more than just this one guy. You need to think about not just this leader, but all the other leaders that are going to be coming after him. Don't just think about now. You've got to think about the long term. And that scene was in my mind as I read and studied this passage, because it's a little bit similar to what's playing out in the nation of Israel. Here's Israel trying to decide on what form of government they are going to have as a nation. And here's Samuel saying to them, you need to think carefully about what you're asking for because you can't just think about the one person in front of you now or that this moment or what seems best right now. You've got to be thinking about the long term. You've got to be playing the long game. But this is an important moment in the whole history of Israel. This is a moment where Israel is shifting, really, from just being a confederacy of tribes to being a monarchy an established monarchy with all that goes along with that system. That's a major shift and a major transition, and it's very pivotal in the whole biblical story. So what I want to do is, is look at this passage, but try to put it in the context of the whole biblical story for you this morning. So I want to take a really big run-up to this passage in 1 Samuel 8, because just reading this, you can kind of feel like you've parachuted in. But I want to take you right back and show the biblical story up to this point, and then look at how the story flows on from here. So to do that, we need to go all the way back, way, way, way back, to a guy named Abraham. Now, Abraham comes a long, long way earlier in the biblical story. He's all the way back in Genesis, Genesis 12 onwards. But God, he's a, Abraham's a really important person in the biblical narrative. God appears to Abraham and makes him these extraordinary promises. He says to Abraham, through you, through you and Sarah, all families of the earth will be blessed. He promises that through Abraham's family, blessing is going to come to the entire earth, to all nations of the earth. And part of what God promises to Abraham is this really significant little promise for what comes on later on with the monarchy. He says in Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Now, that's really significant. But all the way back in Genesis, God's talking to Abraham, and he promises him that kings eventually will come from him. So this idea of having kings, this idea of a monarchy, it was never bad in and of itself. It's not that God was opposed to kings. It's not that God fundamentally didn't want Israel to have a king. In fact, all the way back near the beginning, God had promised kings will be part of Israel's future. This is part of what God had destined for the nation of Israel and part of what would come from the person of Abraham. The reason that it didn't work for Israel, we'll come to in a little while, but I want to show you that monarchy itself was not some 
fundamentally bad thing in God's eyes. He was not fundamentally opposed to the idea of Israel having kings. So these promises that God made to Abraham, they were passed down from Abraham, passed down to his son Isaac, passed down to his son Jacob, passed down to Jacob's sons who become the 12, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel, over the course of its uh, journey through the Old Testament, kind of takes on various forms. As Israel starts out, it really starts out as a theocracy. A theocracy is, is a nation with, with God as the head. God's the leader. God's the king. And this is how Israel began. Under, under Moses and under Aaron, Israel is a theocracy. So God is ruling directly over his people. He's using Moses as his mouthpiece. He's using Aaron as his, as his priest. But God is leading and God is ruling. He's guiding them by the pillar of fire. He's guiding them by the cloud. God's leading. God's ruling. God's guiding. And this takes Israel. That's the time of the exodus. God's leading them through that time. Uh, through to their time when they come into the land of Canaan and settle down in that land. That's a period in which Israel was a theocracy. And then, after Israel's been in the land for a while, they transition to this next system of government, which is the era of the judges. Now, obviously, there's a book of the Bible named after this, so you can find that pretty easily. The judges were a series of leaders that Israel had, who led and guided and ruled over the people. Don't When you think judges, don't think like the judges we have today, people with the wigs sitting in the courtroom. That's not who judges were in Israel. Think of the judges. They were more like military leaders. So Israel was conquered by other nations, and God would raise up these military leaders who would lead the Israelites out into battle, and they would defeat their enemies, and they would reclaim their freedom and reclaim their independence. That's the role of the judges. And there was the cycle of judges through the book of Judges. Think of people like Gideon, people like Deborah was one of the judges, people like uh, Ehud, people like Samson. Even though many of these people were flawed and failures in some ways, they were the people that God used in this time to lead his people and guide his people and defeat the enemies of Israel. So that's the era of the Judges. Now, as you come to the end of that era... You have this person, Samuel, and Samuel really is a transitional figure between the era of the judges and the era of the monarchy. He sort of sits in between. Samuel himself was a judge, so he was one of Israel's judges, but he also then becomes really pivotal in bringing about this monarchy within Israel. And what happens, this starts to bring us into the story that we're looking at this morning, Uh, Samuel gets old. And his own sons are not following the Lord. And so the people come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, it's been fine having these judges, but now we want a new system. Now we are demanding a king. And just have another look at this request that the people make for a king. Uh, In verse 4, verse 5, they said to him, you are old. That's pretty offensive to start with. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Now again, we've got to remember when we come to this, the the idea of a king in and of itself is not the problem. Okay, Kings are fine, queens are fine. The idea is that Israel was flawed in asking for a king for three reasons. There is three problems with this request. The first is the problem of motives. Why does Israel want a king? Well, they, they say it explicitly. We want a king so we can be like 
the other nations. Right? This is, this is what Israel is doing. They're surrounded by other nations, and they're looking around, and they see all these other nations have a king. And so this is basically Israel going, I want to be like those guys. They've got a king. They've got a king. They've got a king. How come we don't have a king? They're feeling left out. They just, they just want to be like the nations around them. It really just sounds pretty childish, doesn't it? I mean, this is basically what my kids do. Actually, I shouldn't talk about my kids this morning because all the kids are in. You might, you might tell my boys. So instead, I'll just talk about children in general. Some children, not my boys, may have a situation where one of them is playing with a particular toy. And then the other one sees that, that boy playing with the toy. And what does he want? All he wants is to play with that toy. Right, Boaz? Yeah. So 30 seconds ago, he didn't care about that toy. Right? But now he sees his sibling playing with that toy, and all he wants is to play with that toy. Of course, once he's got the toy, five minutes later, what's happened? Bored with it, throw it away. The point is, I want to be like them. I want what they've got. I want to play with what they're playing with. That's all that's happening here with Israel. It's completely juvenile. Israel's just saying, all these other nations have got a king. We just want what they've got. And that's the problem of motive. Really underneath all of that, what's Israel saying? We don't trust the king that we already have. We don't trust Yahweh as our king. In fact, God says this, doesn't he? When, when he says to Samuel, Samuel, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's me. God is the one who promised to be their king. In fact, if you look further down, uh, when Israel talks in verse 20, they say, we, we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's exactly what God promised to do. God is the one who promised he would lead them. God promised he would go out and guide them. God promised he would fight their battles. That's what he's been doing the whole time. And yet Israel has the audacity to say, yeah, we'd rather have one of these human kings. God is an infinitely greater king who can fight infinitely greater battles than any human king. And yet Israel's saying, meh, we just want a human king. Thanks very much. This is a total lack of trust in God. It's a total lack of confidence in God's authority and God's kingship and God's rule. It is really a fundamental rejection of God. That's the problem. Not a problem with kings. It's a problem that Israel is rejecting God. So that's the first issue, the problem of motive. The second issue problem is timing. Again, God's not opposed to kings, but this wasn't the time. God's not uh, initiating a king at this point. Israel's demanding it. Israel's trying to just get something, grab something, take something for themselves. But this was not the time that God had ordained for them. So Israel's not working according to God's time frame. And the third problem is the type of king that Israel is requesting. They want a king like the other nations, and the other nations had an absolute monarchy. That means a king that had absolute power. While that person said, that's what went. There's no checks and balances. There's no different systems of government, the executive and the judicial and so on. It is just the king. But that's the kind of king Israel wants. And this is, the, this is why Samuel warns them so heavily about what they're in for. If they, if they get their wish, if they get this kind of king. Look at what Samuel says. He gives this whole speech. A big, big chunk of this chapter is taken up with the speech. He says, if you have a king, he's going to take your sons 
and he's going to take them to, to run alongside his chariots, and he's going to conscript them into his army, because, of course, if you're going to have a monarchy, you're going to have to have a standing army now. So all your son, your children are going to be taken into the army, and they will serve at the king's bequest. He says the king is going to take your daughters. Your daughters are going to be perfumers. Your daughters are going to be bakers. They're going to be conscripted. They're going to be the king's attendants and serving the king's attendants. And sure enough, that's what happened. And he says the king is not just going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take what you produce. He's going to take the best of your grain. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your slaves. He's going to take your cattle. And what do we call that today? Tax, right? It's just that they didn't have currency. So they had to give what they earned, give what they produced, give what they owned. Samuel is saying, guess what? If you want to set up a constitutional monarchy, that is going to mean a heavy system of taxation. And all that taxation is going to come from you, the people, and it's going to flow towards the king. So he's saying, in this system, all the resources will flow upwards. All the, all the, 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 the you have, all of the things that you produce, a good chunk of that is just going to go towards sustaining and supporting this king. And if you look closely at what Samuel says here, there is one word that just keeps cropping up time and time again. And it's the word take. He says the king will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your cattle and your donkeys. He will take, he will take, he will take. And that is indicative of exactly who the kings became. They were takers. That's the nature of the kind of kingship that Israel had. And if, if you've read ahead in the story, you'll know that's exactly how the kings of Israel play out. They're takers. They take land. They take wives. They take wealth. They take everything that they can get their hands on. These kings are fundamentally, most of them, interested in, in themselves. And Samuel said, that is going to be the way it is. Amazingly, in spite of all that, Samuel gets to the end of this great speech and the people say, thanks, Samuel. That was amazing. Love the speech. We're still like a king. Thanks very much. And so Samuel goes back to the Lord with this and maybe even more amazingly, God says, okay. And God allows the people to have a king. It's hard to understand in some ways, isn't it? But I think is this an example of God changing his mind? Well, I think it's an example of God working through human circumstances. And if there's one thing we know about God is that he will work out his purposes no matter what human beings do. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of the fact that we don't work according to, we, we refuse his, his timing, we refuse his providence, God will continue to work. He'll continue to move his story forward. And in one sense, I think what we've got here is an example of God handing people over to their own desires. Sometimes God does this, right? When we insist on making dumb decisions, God sometimes says, okay, well, if that's what you want, you have it. If that's what you want, I'm not going to stand in your way, and there's only going to be one way for you to really find out how dumb that decision is by having it your way. And God will still work, and he'll still move, and he'll still move the story forward, but God is saying to the people, all right, I'm going to hand you over to what you want, and you will find out eventually just how bad it's going to get. So then as the story moves forward, Samuel goes and anoints the first king of Israel. Anyone know who the first king was? Saul. Yeah, he was the first king from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, after Saul, you have King David. He's from a different tribe. So it's the only time where you don't have that succession within the family, but it jumps to now to the tribe of Judah. And then after David, you have David's son Solomon. After Solomon, anyone know? Rehoboam. 
Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Those first four kings, they're a very mixed bag. They're probably the ones that are more familiar to you, especially David, great king. But at least what they managed to do is to hold the nation together. For that time, Israel's still one united nation. But you get to Rehoboam. That guy is so incredibly reckless. And we're going to look at Rehoboam in the series. He manages to split the whole kingdom. He, he, he divides the nation in two because he makes such a stupid decision that 10 of the 12 tribes rebel against him and take off and say, we've got no share in Rehoboam. We don't want this guy as our king. They take off and they set up their own kingdom in the north. Rehoboam only manages to hang on to two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin in the south. So from that point, Israel becomes a divided monarchy. Now, I know this, this part of this, this is not going to dramatically change your life, but this is just stuff that you need to know in order to understand the biblical story. This is just helpful history. So Israel has this time then where they are a divided nation, 10 tribes in the north, and they keep the name Israel. So Israel is the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria. The two tribes in the south, they take the name Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. And from that point, these two nations, they really are two nations, they just bicker with each other, sometimes fight against each other. And you have a succession of parallel kings, northern kings and southern kings. In the series we're going to do, we'll look at one northern king, and all the rest will be southern kings. Of the northern kings, not one of them is righteous. Amazing when you think about that. Hundreds of years of history, not a single northern king that follows and obeys God. Of the southern kings, the kings of Judah, there are the occasional bright spark. You do get some that seek to follow God, uh, like Josiah, like Hezekiah. You get some that are faithful. But again, it's a pretty dark time in Israel's history. As, and really with these kings, they just continue on the whole to lead Israel further and further away from God. And they continue to become more and more like the nations around them, not just by having a king, but by following the gods of the nations around them and setting up the same altars as the nations around them and observing all the same religious practices as the pagan nations around them. It gets worse and worse and worse until eventually God hands them over to judgment and he allows other nations to come in and conquer them, both the northern kingdom first and then the southern kingdom, take the people off into exile. And that's the end of the monarchy. That's, that's the last time. When, when Israel goes into exile, that's the end of the kings. They have some governors when they come back from exile, but never a monarchy again like they had beforehand. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak time in Israel's history. But in the midst of this, even though the people are so hard-hearted towards God, even though this whole thing began with a lack of trust in God, God in his faithfulness, God in his mercy, continues to work. He's still working out his purposes. And in the midst of this time of Israel's kings, God makes an extraordinary promise. I want to read it to you from Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter, chapter 16, verse 5. God says, In love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. So here is a prophecy in the middle of the time of the kings where God's saying there's another king coming. There's a greater king coming. 
All these kings are such a mixed bag, some better than others, but there's another king who is coming, a great king, the true king, the ultimate king. And this king, is going to his throne will be established by God. He'll be from the house of David. We learn that. So he's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah, that means. He's going to be faithful towards God, where so many of these kings were unfaithful. This king will be faithful. He's going to pursue justice, where so many of these kings were just uh, pursuing all kinds of injustices. This king will pursue true justice, God's justice. And this king is going to be righteous. Where so many of the kings of Israel were unrighteous, this king will be truly righteous. And his throne, Isaiah tells us in other places, will be established forever. Now we know, because we've read the rest of the story, haven't we, who this is talking about. Which king is this ultimately pointing towards? Jesus. Now, if you're sitting in a synagogue, listening to the Old Testament unfolded by a rabbi, that'll be pointing towards the Messiah who has not yet come. But we know as Christians that the true Messiah, the true king, has already come, and his name is Jesus. That's what this prophecy is pointing towards. That's why when you get just a couple of verses a uh, couple of verses to go, when you get all the way over to the New Testament, and you get to the Gospels, you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how Matthew starts the story. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the way Matthew starts that, Think about the title that he gives to Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. Anointing was something that you did to kings. Samuel anoints Saul as the first king. He anoints David as the second king. This was a sign that God had set these people apart as kings. And now Matthew's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the anointed one. For a Jewish person listening to this, immediately you're thinking, well, this is like God's anointed ones in the Old Testament. These are like the kings of Israel. When you, when you hear that word Messiah, you can think king. When Matthew says Jesus the Messiah, what he's basically saying is Jesus the king. Jesus is the true and rightful king of Israel. And he clarifies that by saying he's not just the king, but he's the son of David. So in other words, he's the specific king that was promised to David, the one who would sit on David's throne. And he's the son of Abraham. His kingship goes all the way back to those promises made to Abraham, that from Abraham, kings would come. Kings would come from the nation that Abraham would, uh, would, would bear. And so this, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all these kings in the Old Testament. This is what I want you to keep in mind as we go through the series on the Old Testament kings. In some way or other, all of these kings point towards the one true great king who was to come, Jesus Christ. That's the point. Don't think of these kings just as a bunch of heroes or a bunch of villains. Right? There were some good, there were some bad. But the point is not just how good they were or how bad they were or whether we should follow this example or we shouldn't follow that example. Yes, we'll talk about all of that, but there's a bigger point. This is what, what I want you to see. The whole purpose of these kings in the biblical story is to point towards the king of kings who was coming, the Lord of lords, the one true king, who would be everything that Israel's kings should have been and was without any of their failures and their flaws. He was the king who was truly faithful, truly righteous, and truly just. Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole succession of kings 
that always pointed towards himself. And here is one critical difference between Jesus and all of those Old Testament kings. You think about what Samuel said to the people, that their kings would take, they would take, and they would take, and they would take. And now you think about what Jesus said about himself. In Mark chapter 10, what did he say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you, when you can hear those words in the context of all the Old Testament kings, you'll see just how different Jesus is to every king that's come before him. With the Old Testament kings, it was take, take, take. And yet Jesus says the Son of Man has come to give. He's come to give his life. That's the ultimate demonstration of who Jesus was when he went to the cross. And if you think about that story in the Gospels of Jesus, his passion and his crucifixion, what you are seeing there is the coronation of the one true king. His crown was made of thorns, and his throne was not in a palace. It was on a cross. But as Jesus hung there, he was taking his rightful place as the world's true and only king. It was never the kind of coronation we'd expect. It was without all the pomp and ceremony that we would normally expect with a monarchy. And yet that's how Jesus took his throne. And that's how Jesus established his kingdom, by going to the cross and giving his life, his body broken and his blood poured out. And from that incredible sacrifice, Jesus gives, he gives us forgiveness. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He gives us freedom. He gives us reconciliation with God. He gives us eternal life. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives and gives and gives. That's the very nature of Jesus as our King, is the self-giving love. That's why we can so freely bring ourselves into submission under this King. Because we know that he's not acting out of self-interest. And we know that he's not acting with a selfish heart. We know that he's not acting to his own advantage. We know that he is always, always, always acting in love towards us. Always acting for the sake of the other. Always acting in humility. Always acting in self-sacrifice. This is our king. This is our Lord. And he calls us to bring our lives all of who we are, and bow down before this one true King, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. So as we go through the series, what I'm hoping is that you can see these kings in the Old Testament in the context of the whole biblical story. And we'll focus in on each one, but keep this in mind. The way in which the story has moved up to this point and the way in which the story flows on from this point. Think about the way in which these kings are the result of promises that God has made right from the beginning. Promises that God is still working out today to bless and to give freedom and life to all nations. Think about the way that God works through these kings in spite of human wickedness, in spite of our rebellion. They're amazing examples of the faithfulness of God. That God's always working, working out his purposes, working out his plan, working for good for those who love him, even when human hearts turn against him. And keep looking for the ways that every one of these kings in some ways points towards Jesus, 
points towards the king. That's the role, that's the purpose that these kings ultimately have in the biblical story so that our eyes might not just be on these particular figures and characters, but ultimately on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we want to pray that as we think about this journey that we're embarking on as a church in a couple of weeks' time, we want to pray, Lord, that you'd prepare our hearts, uh, prepare our minds, and we think, Lord, of these of these real people who ruled over your people thousands of years ago, and the stories are so ancient and in some ways maybe hard to connect to, but God, we just ask that you would help us to see the way in which they, they expose all of our failures and our flaws. It's easy to point fingers at them and see their weaknesses, but God, we know there's uh, there's so much in us that is unworthy. And God, we just ask that through this series, you would give us a bigger vision of Jesus. Just help him, help us, Lord, to see him as Jesus, as you truly are, the King above all kings, the name above all names, the great, powerful Lord. You are the Lion of Judah, and yet you are also the slain Lamb. We thank you, Jesus, that you are both, that you have all power, and yet you've given yourself to us in weakness, and you've given us yourself in sacrifice. And we thank you that because of that, we are so blessed that we can be called sons and daughters of the King, and we can be drawn into this family, drawn into this royalty, where our identity now comes under your great kingship because you wear the crown. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and we pray that you would work within our lives, within our church community, through the series ahead to show us more of who you are and shape our lives to become more like you. We pray this for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.